have limited resources, they have limited budgets, and murders are not solved in an hour's time. But the reality is still there, that there's always evidence. There are things that need to be considered. Stephen Schmidt is a real CSI agent. He is an anthropologist, forensic anthropologist. He went over into Rwanda, a nation that in the 90s had between one and two million people. Their lives were taken in genocide. He was asked to go just to one particular location that it ended up being the death of four to five hundred individuals. It was a Catholic church, and all of these people were massacred. Then they were taken, and we're not going to get gross, so don't get tense. We're going to keep everything... No details here. But they were taken out and their bodies were dumped behind a hillside. And ten months later, he was invited in to try to figure out some of this crime. How did they die? Who was guilty? Etc. Out of all of them, he refers in a particular article to one individual that he called Banana Man. Because this man's corpse was lying beside a banana tree. He said he was old enough to be a grandfather. And it was interesting in just observing a few things about his skeleton, about probably how this individual died. Because of the quick break with a sharp object to the left ankle, it was assumed that he was running and someone threw a machete at him. He hit the ground and because his fingers and wrists were broken, it was believed that he was probably fighting off the one that was attacking him. And then probably somewhere in the battle, he turned over to protect himself face down, and his life was taken with a blow to the head. The point is this. Life is full of evidences. The way we live is evident by the things that we do, by the scars that we carry, by the dreams that we have, by the heart that dwells within us, by the convictions that we have. And this morning, I want to simply ask you this question. Is it evident that you're living the Christian life? Is there enough proof that you can be convicted of Christianity? The Lord's not looking for people that are just religious. The Lord is looking for people that will make Him their life. Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about the fact that John 20 is kind of like a crime scene investigation? It was a crime that put Jesus upon the cross... You remember the high priest in Matthew, the 26th chapter, he's looking for something to convict Jesus upon. And finally, asking him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he acknowledges that he is. He says, that's it. And he asks, what should we do? And someone responds, that's a crime worthy of death. It's blasphemy, they thought. It wasn't blasphemy. He was the Christ, the Son of God. But yet he's falsely convicted. And then Hebrews 4 and 15 reminds us that not only did he die upon the cross that mankind crucified the only perfect individual that ever walked the face of this earth. He was tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. The apostles watched their Jesus Christ die upon the cross. They watched Him be buried. Now how is He going to prove? What evidence is He going to show them that He is really alive? You remember when they were in the room and He walks through into that room? And remember, He gives them the evidence. He shows them the prints in His hand. And He shows them their side. Now, sometimes we give Thomas a rough way to go. 
But you know, Thomas just wanted to see the same thing that the other apostles had already seen. So a week later, Thomas comes back, and he says, I can't believe unless I see. And Jesus goes over, and he allows him to touch the prince and to see his side. Jesus doesn't praise him for his lack of belief. Unbelief is a very serious crime spiritually. But the point is, there was evidence. And Jesus was willing to allow them to see the evidence. And in our lives, are we willing to have that evidence and allow the world to see the evidence? And God will know the evidence that we are faithful Christians. But why? Why is it really necessary for us to have the evidence that we too have died spiritually? And we have buried that dead man. And that we have arisen to walk a new life. In the text this morning that was so capably read in Colossians the third chapter, I'd like for you to note, it's back on the screen again, and I want you to note especially verse 3 and 4 where he says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life... Now that's the whole plea of this morning's sermon, is, is there enough evidence that Christ is really our life? Not that I'm a religious person, not that I'm a believer in Jesus, but is Christ our life? But what's the motivation for this? Somebody says, I don't guess Christ is my life, but who cares? Well, here's the reason we should care. Notice this in verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. There's coming a day. There's coming a day of judgment. A day, and keep in mind, what's forensics? Forensics is when you gather all of the evidence so that you'll have a case in court. Can there be enough evidence gathered up because one day every one of us are going to stand in a day of judgment? Let's read a couple passages that deal with this idea of the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter and verse 13. We're going to read this in the middle of a passage that talks much more about the day of judgment and and us being judged, but let's notice verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3 and 13. He says, each one, picking up in the middle of a sentence, each one's work will become clear for the day. Now notice that's a capital D there because he's talking about that day of judgment. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work what sort it is. Now what are we going to be judged upon? According to 13, it's each one's works. They're going to become clear. We can try to hide things from each other. We can try to hide things from ourselves. But the bottom line is there's coming a day of judgment where all will be brought to the table and everything will become evident. When we read over in 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter and verse 10, notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to that he has done, whether good or bad. It's a day of judgment. Everything we've done, we'll give an account. That thing that we believe that nobody in the world would know, Everybody in the world is going to know on the day of judgment. Unless, unless there's evidence that those things have been forgiven. God will forgive and forget. And those things don't have to be brought up again. But friends, I can't stand before God on the day of judgment without His grace and think that God's not going to bring up some of the things. Everything done in the quietness of black, of the night, 
and everything that's been done in the openness of daylight, public and private, or by our opinion, big or small, it's going to be revealed on the day of judgment. I don't want everything I've done revealed on the day of judgment. I wouldn't want a couple of you to know, much less a house full or a world full to know. What's our hope? God says, I'll forgive you. I'll let those trespasses be forgiven. They won't be held to your account any longer. But the only way to do that is for your life to be hid in Christ. Notice he doesn't say the only way to do it is to just be a believer. Just be religious. He says, I want your life to become Christ. Your life hidden in Christ. And so just as Jesus Christ died and was buried and was resurrected, we too must go through a death, a burial, and a resurrection. Think with me, if you will, for just a moment about this death. Can you give proof to the fact that you have died? When we look in back to our text of Colossians 3, notice where he says in verse... Three, for you died, and your life is hidden in Christ. What does it mean for you and I to die? There are two aspects of spiritual death that we learn in the Scriptures. One is the death that sin does to us. You know, physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of ourselves from God. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2 reveals to us that it's sin that separates us from God. It's not because His hand is too short to save us or that His ear is too heavy to hear us, but verse 2 tells us it's because our sins and iniquities have separated us from God. So we picture in your mind, if you will, an illustration of God, and then there's a great barrier of sin, and then there's us. And that's what it is to be spiritually dead. Romans 3 and 23 tell us, For all sin and come short of the glory of God. What can cross over that barrier? And that's the whole answer to salvation. And so we see that to be dead spiritually is to be guilty of sin in which have never been forgiven. But then also there's another aspect of spiritual death. And this aspect that is speaking of death in the spiritual realm, is our responsibility. And it's the aspect of repentance. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans, the sixth chapter. In Romans, the sixth chapter, I'd like to read verse 1 and 2, and then let's skip down and read verse 6. Is there enough evidence in your life to prove that you have repented? Here's how he would say it. Those in Romans, the sixth chapter, they were struggling with this. Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You understand what he's saying there? I tell you what, I just want to do more sin because I know God's grace is so great that His grace can just keep taking care of it. I was pumping gas just the other night. I heard, I must be getting old because these kids keep looking so young. I thought it would be a 16-year-old girl. Anyway, one of her friends comes up and says, Hey, what are you doing tonight? I'm about to go clubbing. You want to go with me? Well, hopefully she was older than that, and hopefully she'll repent. 
But bottom line is, will grace just take care of that? Hey, God's grace is so great, I can do whatever I want on Friday night and grace will take care of it. I can cheat on my expense account on Monday and God will take care of it. That's what God's grace is all about. I can lack integrity through the week and God's grace will just take care of it. I tell you what, I'm going to live in sin that grace may abound. And verse 2 says, certainly not. That's not the design of God's grace. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now what did we do to sin? He said, he's talking about the plan of salvation. What, what is our responsibility? He said, when we were saved, we came to the Lord saying, I'm going to repent. I'm going to put to death sin. Now another way he says that same thing is in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. What's our responsibility? Lord, I'm going to take a hatchet, and I'm just going to break the left ankle of the old man of sin, and he's going to really slow down sinning. Lord, I'm going to take the old man of sin and I'm going to put him in a closet, and he'll only come out occasionally. God, what do you want us to do with that old man of sin? He says, I want you to crucify him. Put to death. Serve sin no longer. Is there enough evidence in your life this morning that you can prove by your evidence in life that you have repented. Go with me, if you will, to Acts the 26th chapter. In Acts the 26th chapter, we read in verse 20, Paul is standing before Agrippa, and he's telling about his ministry and what he preached as he carried out his ministry to the Jews. And then in this verse, he's even going to tell what he said to the Gentiles. In Acts the 26th chapter, in verse 20, Notice the teaching here on repentance. This is a very enlightening verse about repentance. But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent. Turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So what does it mean to repent? He says repentance is a turn. It's a change. You remember when Jesus spoke of an individual coming to Him? He didn't use the word repent, but He implied the concept of repentance. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 24, where He said, If any man will come after Me, let him deny self, take up the cross, and follow Me. What does that mean? Turn from self to God. Repentance is what? Lord, it's no longer all about Me. It's all about You. God, it's no longer My will. It's Your will be done. So he says here, repent, turn to God. But did you notice that next phrase where he says, and do works befitting repentance? The NIV here says, prove their repentance by their deeds. I love that phrase. Prove. Is there enough evidence in our life to prove that we have repented? If you can imagine an investigation. Someone stakes out your home. They monitor your television. 
They monitor your computer and internet visits. They tap your phone. They listen to all of your conversations at work and with neighbors and with your family. Can someone else come back at the end of a month and say, the evidence is clear. This person has repented in their life. See, repentance isn't a once, point-in-case occurrence where we say, well, I'm going to repent so that I can be baptized. Repentance is a life. It is to have our life hidden in Christ because we've taken that individual and we've crucified that individual and we have become someone new. And so when here Paul is addressing individuals that were continuing to live in sin, he says, whoa, something's wrong here. If you're continuing to live in sin, implied, it must be because you're leaving the Lord, or what he directly says is maybe you haven't understood the concept of salvation. To be saved was to repent and put that to death. Is there enough evidence to prove that I've repented? But as we go back to our text in Colossians, the third chapter, we see also that the need not only to be dead in verse 3, but he also ends verse 3 by saying your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then at the beginning of verse 1 of Colossians 3, he said, if then you were raised with Christ. I read those two phrases because that helps us realize something's implied here. In other words, if that's all that we read, we'd say, you know, something's missing from this text. And what's missing is back in the second chapter. You see, if we were reading the letter as it was designed to be read, we would have already covered in detail the aspect of the burial. And so all of this other would fall into place. So let's go back for just a moment and say, well, what is the burial that God wants? God wants us to put to death the old man of sin. What do you do when someone dies? What do we do when we have a pet that dies? Traditionally, we take and we bury the deceased. That's the same analogy here because that's what happened to Jesus Christ. Here we see analogy also of circumcision. You remember circumcision was the sign that was given to Abraham, the removal of the foreskin of the flesh. It would begin with eight-day-old Hebrew boys. Notice as he says here in Colossians, the second chapter, verse 11 and 12, "...in Him you were also circumcised." with the circumcision made without hands. So now we say, well, should we have that kind of circumcision, a physical circumcision, just as they took their hands and they circumcised their male sons? And says, no, I want to give you a circumcision of Christ, except this circumcision is without hands. In other words, hands will not perform this circumcision. This is a circumcision that is done by God. Well, what is this circumcision? by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. What is the burial? The burial is baptism. Here it's called Christ's circumcision. I've heard individuals say that baptism is simply an act of obedience. Friends, anything God tells us to do and we do it, that is an act of obedience. But I have been greatly misled if I believe that the only thing that happens in baptism is just that I've gone through an action to obey Christ. 
Here we see very clearly that he likens baptism to a surgery. And it's a surgery that man doesn't perform. And so what we see is someone taking with their hands and immersing someone under the water, but God does a surgery. He cuts away the guilt of the flesh so that we've taken that old individual that is dead. Dead because we're separated from God. Sin separates us from God. Dead because we have died to sin. Repentance. We take that individual that's dead and we bury them. The Lord performs surgery, cuts away their guilt of sin, and they are raised in newness of life. Twofold newness of life. Newness of life because now they're alive spiritually. That barrier of sin has been removed. Newness of life also because they're choosing to live a new life because they've crucified the old man of sin. Now here's the question. Is there enough evidence in your life to prove that you have obeyed Christ by being buried with Him? Please listen to this carefully. I study with individuals every week. And I study with more adults than not, probably. At the beginning of the study, they thought that everything was well with them and God. And they admit by the end of the study they've been misled. That they've been taught what God did not teach. Friends, there's no such thing in the Scriptures as a sinner's prayer. In other words, someone says, I'm prepared to stand on the day of judgment before God and acknowledge that I was saved with a sinner's prayer. Do you have the evidence? Can you turn in the Scriptures with evidence from God that that is the way to be saved? Someone says, well, I I just called on the name of the Lord. What did you do to call on the name of the Lord? Can you turn to the Scriptures and say, I've done what the Scriptures say to do for those that wanted to call on the name of the Lord? Calling on the name of the Lord is what we have to do. Acts the second chapter, the first Christians that we see, in Acts the second chapter, they were told that they needed to call on the name of the Lord, then the Lord was identified, Jesus of Nazareth, and those individuals were convicted of their sins, and they asked in verse 37, what shall we do? Now keep in mind, they were already told, call on the name of the Lord. And so they responded, what do we need to do? In other words, they're saying, we're guilty of sin, what do we need to do to call on the name of the Lord? Verse 38, they were told, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. Is there enough evidence in my life that I can go back to what is truth and say, I have submitted my will fully to God? I'm not suggesting to you this morning that we earn our way to heaven, that we merit some way of salvation, But the bottom line is, God is the one that saves. God tells the place in which He'll forgive sins. He tells the way in which He'll forgive sins. And it's up to us to decide if we want to go to that place in the way in which He says. Does the evidence in my life state that that is what I have done? Once we rise from that life, that new life, There are two things that Paul says in Colossians 3 that identify whether or not we are truly in Christ. Whether or not our life is hid in Christ. Look back at verse 1 and 2 again. Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2. He says, If then you were raised, that's coming out of the waters of baptism, with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Let's think for just a moment. What is the evidence in our life to prove 
that we are seeking those things which are above. What's above? If that's evidence of whether or not I'm a Christian, I'm seeking things where I tell you, I've sought a lot of things. I know I've used this illustration to you before. I've done it again this week. I go to the refrigerator, I open it, and I look all over the refrigerator. I turn around, I say, I can't find it. Tracy will say, it's right in front of you. We've all sought a lot of things. But the Lord says, I want to give you a test here. This is how you can know if your life is hid in Christ. Are you seeking the things which are above? Money is not above. Power and prestige of earthly nature is not above. What's above? The book of life is above. The tree of life is above. Heaven is above. The presence of God is above. Can I honestly say that I am seeking those things which are above? Look to the next slide. Look to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. And notice those things there that he says to do about faith as it relates to faith. Verse 6, But without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We won't take the time to turn to it right now, but in Luke, you remember the 70 were sent out. And, and they were so excited about having the power to walk on scorpions and all these miraculous powers to heal and etc. And they came back to Jesus and that was a part of their report. They were excited at the miraculous powers that God gave and God says, what you ought to rejoice in is that your name is written above. How many of us get so excited about our ministry We get so excited about our physical family that we forget that the greatest thing to seek is to make sure that our ministry is glorifying God. Making sure that our family is glorifying God. Making sure that our life is all about God. Secondly, also said... Set your affections would be the King James. New King James says, set your mind on things above. So not only do we seek those things, but we also set our mind on them. Do you remember that occasion in Matthew where Jesus was talking in Matthew the 16th chapter in verse 21 through 23 to Peter? And he told him in 21, For the time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Peter wasn't at all glad to hear that his friend, his, his master, was going to do this. And so the protective Peter steps up and says, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful. Notice that word. You are not mindful of the things of God by the things of men, or but the things of men. Jesus didn't want emotionally to die on the cross, but He knew it was the will of God. What happens if you run with the wrong crowd? Well, teenagers, you know you'll... No, it's not teenagers. 1 Corinthians 15.33 was written to adults and can be applied to teenagers. 
Evil companions corrupt good morals. Jesus was human. What did Jesus have to put a stop to? Jesus had to put a stop to a man that was going to deter him from doing the will of God. He says, I've got to prepare you. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Peter steps up and says, we won't let it happen. He says, you better get behind me, Satan. Your mind isn't set on things above. Your mind is set here. Where's your mind? Depths of affection. Deepest desires of the heart. I remember several years ago, it was time to vote on a contract with Goodyear. They were going to try something new if it was voted in. They would work three on, three off, two on, two off. By that rotation, that meant that any faithful Christian would only attend 26 worship services a year and miss 26 Wednesday nights a year. And so several of the faithful Christians were urging their co-workers, vote against this. We don't want to miss out on that much of our spiritual life. And then they found out that several of their other, quote, Christian friends were voting in favor of this. And they went to them and said, why in the world are you voting for this that's going to take us out of our fellowship and worship to God half of the year? They said, do you not realize that if we take two days of vacation with that kind of arrangement, we can have eight straight days off? Do you realize how many weeks we can have off a year with that arrangement? Where's your affection? What if your employer said to you, you just pull a 12-hour day every Sunday and I'll give you six days off? Would you take it? How deep is your affection for God? Can it be bought? What will you give in exchange for your soul? Is there enough evidence in the depths of your heart prove that you're seeking and that you're setting your mind on those things which are above. This morning, I've got to realize the fact that there's going to be a day of judgment. And I'm only saved by God's grace, but God's grace only reaches those that are submissive to Him. And I need to present enough evidence prove that I've died. I've repented. And I've been buried. I've been buried with Christ in baptism. That I have been raised to seek and to set my mind on those things above. This morning, there's not a one of us here perfect. But let's all leave here determined that we're going to give God a little more evidence than we ever have in the past. We're going to take a step closer to Him this week than we ever have in the past. And if in that, what you need to do is repent of sins, this is a wonderful day to do it. If you're willing to confess before man that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to be baptized into Christ for remission of sins, won't you do that this morning? Maybe you've done that and something separated you from God. Come back to Him today. Let's pray forgiveness. If we can help you in any way, comes we stand as we sing.